Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Today, we want to get into the hot topic and the one that's been on all of our minds since last Wednesday, which is the siege on our great capital. And it's funny because, you know, our episode released that day last week, and we were talking about just the shit show that it, that we expected that day, just with the, like, annoying, petty objections to the election results from Republican senators. But we did not know what that was going to turn into. And I think we just wanted to take this time in this intro and break down what happened and what it all means. Because I feel like, I don't know about you, Sam, but I feel like there are so many things that I learned this week that like even happens in our government. It's been really confusing that like, oh, you can do that or you can't do that or just everything's been very confusing. And so we want to break down everything and hopefully give everyone like a peace of mind of like what's going on and what to expect in coming days. Yeah, I mean, we've said this before, is that the silver lining to everything that's going on is that it's given us a platform and an opportunity to learn more about our government and how it actually works. And this is just another example of that happening live before our eyes as we're all glued to the TV and can't get enough of these, you know, news notifications that are coming through. And I think as we run through this, just to you know, maybe, you know, obviously take notes, but keep in mind is we're learning with you guys and this is a very fluid process. And of course, like you, we have questions, but we want to make sure that your questions are taken care of. So if you're watching whatever news program you watch and you're like, I don't know what this means. I'm so confused. Send us a DM. We are happy to take a look into it, get to the bottom of it, provide those answers that you so badly that you need. And we all need. Seriously, stat. Like, we just need them. We're going to give you the scoop as to what happened, not to give you guys PTSD. I know that that seems to be, like, our theme, I, our 2020 recap. Are you guys okay? Like, can someone please send a smoke signal? Like, Maddie, are you okay after even recording that? Because, like, I feel some, like, residual trauma. No, like, I was... I don't know, like, who I was last Wednesday because <laughs> all I remember is just, like... I watched CNN for probably 12 hours straight. <laughs> I was a concern for you. Yeah. I I mean, I woke up because let's not forget the fact that Wednesday we found out that the Georgia runoffs election results came in and the Democrats flipped the Senate in Georgia with those runoffs that we've been talking about for weeks. And that was so exciting. So I turned on CNN to go, you know, check out what was happening with the election results CNN comes on, there wasn't anything. And then I was like, oh yeah, the Congress is certifying the election results today. And that's going to be a shit show. So let's just keep watching. And then from there, it just blew up. So we're going to go through all of the shenanigans that happened Wednesday and kind of since then, because Wednesday, it could be its own episode, but there's also been so much that's happened since that has been really confusing, like even for us. So we just want to break everything down. 
But to start, just kind of to preface the whole day of what happened and why it happened, as we know and as we've seen, like for weeks, Trump has urged his supporters to actually go to Washington to stop the certification of the election results. So there was a protest called Stop the Steal. <laughs> there was, you know, I, we all saw the images too. They were wearing Stop the Steal shirts. There was a guy with a Civil War January 6, 2021 shirt. The shirts were ridiculous. Yeah. So Trump was urging people like his supporters to have that protest on the day that the certification of the election results was happening. And so several like simultaneous rallies were planned for Wednesday. And so basically, I just want to highlight and emphasize like this point, because never in modern political history of the United States have these proceedings where Congress certifies election results. They've never, ever, ever, ever been notable. So uh, for 150 years, Congress has acted in accordance with the Constitution. It's actually the 1887 Electoral Count Act to simply receive the election results from the states, announce them to the nation. Um, and it usually just takes a couple of hours on a weekday. It does not make any headlines. But this was Trump's like last-ditch effort to overturn the election on these baseless claims that we've you know, been hearing from him of voter fraud since the election honestly it sounds like a meeting that could have been an email like that's like the comparison of like what this situation should have been it's like a classic you're sitting there like okay the zoom is so over like can we get out of here this could have been an email 100 percent. i love that that's great comparison and anyway i mean this has been thrown out in every single courtroom it was brought to again to highlight these are courtrooms with trump appointed judges and you know it's just so clear there is no evidence of this voter fraud that he has been just screaming from the from the hilltops but since the election you know he has been firing up his base on really just conspiracies that have ultimately led to like this very grim day that we experienced and i think it's also just again highlight like a president that we've never had a president just like spew conspiracies like this and ultimately just leading to like literally a coup on our government. Yeah, and that's something that's very notable here is look, there are presidents of every stripes and they all like humans, which they are, have their fair share of issues and whatnot. And I highly recommend the podcast, Very Presidential, which runs through all of the drama, the backstory and all of the scandals that let me tell you, like every president is involved in. Despite all of these presidents having more scandals than like issues of Vogue, which whew, damn, is, that they have still respected the American process, the American way of government, and all of the institutions and formalities, at least on face value, looking at maybe not our best history textbooks, but in terms of moving, you know, through the transfer of power. So this entire situation is super unprecedented, which really seems to be the word of late, is just unprecedented. Let's set the scene. So let's just travel back in time to Wednesday. So the morning arrives, Everyone has their coffee or they don't have their coffee. I don't think these people had their coffee. Maybe we would have had some better behavior. But hundreds, literally hundreds of people and more assemble on the Capitol lawn, which is more than a mile away from where Trump would soon speak near the White House. Among them were the Proud Boys, which is a far right group. No, thank you. Identifiable by their orange hats. Also, no, thank you. Nobody needed that in fashion. And then about 15 minutes into his speech, where Trump is at his rally, he tells attendees to walk to the Capitol. And he says to them, you have to show strength, which results in supporters leaving the rally in a steady stream. Wow, that sounds more organized than it probably was, but a steady stream before the speech even ends, and they head straight to the Capitol. So in this speech, he then also tells supporters to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol, and they literally do that. And at the same time this is happening, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi begins the proceedings to certify the Electoral College. So it's happening at the same time. These things are in tandem. Everyone's moving and grooving, but in different ways. So during this joint session of Congress, Nancy Pelosi is there alongside Vice President Mike Pence. And inside the Capitol, members of Congress seem completely unaware of the extent of the violence outside. The House and Senate have moved to their separate chambers and are debating certifying the vote. Ted Cruz, official weasel of Texas, urges, <laughs> urges that the Senate should not certify Arizona's electoral votes. Like, dude, you're not even from Arizona. Get out. Literally, I just, can I just add something like, well, first, also, I think it's important. Let's add a little bit of, just 
procedural knowledge of how it works. So basically how they certify the results is they go through each state and they basically say, okay, Arizona had this many electoral votes. Does anyone object? They use much fancier jargon than that, but (laughs) I don't know it. They make sure nobody objects, but Ted Cruz objects with his little posse of Republican, just petty little bitches. And then once somebody objects, the Senate and the House, so this is a joint session of the Senate and the House. So this doesn't always happen, but they come together to certify each state. If there's an objection, they then go into their separate chambers to debate and vote on the objection. So... That's why, you know, they were all together and then they got separated. Amidst all of this, there's this like crazy chaos happening outside. Mitch McConnell gave his speech about how this is so stupid. Why are we objecting the results? And it made me a little bit sad that I, you know, shit on him so much. But Lord knows Mitch McConnell contributed to this whole day at the end of it all. So we're just going to. Well, that one role, we're happy he's standing up now. Like, it's never too late, but it's also a little bit too late. But I was watching this all happen. And then I was seeing on Twitter just, like, this crazy, like, chaos and, like, little violence, like, right outside. And I was like, are they going to evacuate? So basically then, rioters on the west side of the Capitol break into the building And so two minutes later, as they reach the stairs next to the Senate chamber, the Senate is called into recess. So that just shows you like how quickly that switched and like how they were really just on the precipice. Who knows what they would have done to these elected officials? Yeah, I think there's so many questions right now. There's so many theories of seeing people with the like plastic handcuff things that I zip ties. That's what those are called. Wow. So I feel like there are just so many questions as to what their intent was. I think we'll only see and learn more of that as the investigations continue, but not to take away from what was happening and the description. Let's get the lowdown. So more than five minutes after the first rioters break into the building, the house goes into recess. So again, the Senate went into recess, the house went into recess. Um, And so now the police are clashing with the mob inside the building and some of the members um, of Congress are able to evacuate, but others got trapped inside while rioters were like pounding on the doors. And then a bunch of crazy shit happened after that. We don't need to get into, you know, the breaking of Nancy Pelosi's office. Like we saw the images, we saw the videos, like we saw how just like gruesome it was. I'm really like sad to watch, honestly. But Ultimately, it took three hours um, before Sergeant-at-Arms declares that the building was secure. And then the House and the Senate ultimately reconvened kind of in the late hours of the night. And then after all of this, shockingly, they went through Arizona, got tossed in the trash, obviously. And then they decided to continue to object to Pennsylvania later. But then that got tossed in the trash. And then ultimately, Biden was certified as our next president. Was this all worth it? Was the claims of election fraud worth it was the conspiracies worth it it's like people died our capital was sieged everyone in the world is like literally looking at us like in shock and embarrassment all for like a petty symbolic thing that ultimately they knew wasn't ever going to come to fruition and overturn the election if this sounds crazy to you it is and more it's bananas but what's also bananas is the fact that so much of this stems from a president that the Republicans could never seem to shut up, to be perfectly blunt about it. It was like the horse was out of the barn, could never seem to control him. And also at the same time would never stand up to him to a degree to recontrol and reclaim their party and what being a Republican means. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were entertaining and they seemed to think it was for their own callous, incredibly self-righteous and selfish reasons of wanting to run for president in four years. And I think it's a really big shame that they are then trying to run their platform, their initial presidential campaign off of this. Yeah, it's also so crazy, like how hypocritical it is from these individuals, especially. I mean, Republican Party and like its foundational values are nowhere near what they are now defending on a day-to-day basis because of this president. And it's just crazy. I mean, defending the Constitution and patriotism and protecting our troops and law enforcement and law and order and all this shit that they preach all the time 
is just out the window because of their loyalty to a president I don't even know that they actually like, but ultimately because of the power they are trying to reach one day. And it's just disgusting. At the end of the day, just the core root of all evil of like our country and what it can breed. It is. And I think Ted Cruz is such an example of that in this, of Trump insulting his wife, accusing his, what, his father of being an assassin of JFK. Like, are you literally sucking his dick in a closet? Literally. Like, are you good? There's no dignity, no respect, nothing, no moral compass of any sort. And it's just sad and frustrating. But the other kind of like side of this that literally can be a whole episode is the conversation around law enforcement and how they handled this situation and the kind of debate around how law enforcement treated protests in the summer with the Black Lives Matter movement compared to these angry white men. And just those really, really shocking differences. I don't think we're going to get too into that, but definitely want to highlight just another form of hypocrisy here of everything that Republicans and Republican media was spewing in the summer and now just out the window. There is so much hypocrisy going on here. It's beyond me. It's very hard to like comprehend what they actually stand for. Yeah. There were literally Blue Lives Matter flags being waved in the air while like police were getting beaten and slammed in between doors and screaming for help. So at the end of the day, five people were dead, including a policeman and a woman who stormed the building, injured dozens of others, and also damaged the country's reputation for carrying out peaceful transfers of power. So United States of America, as the leader of the free world, is supposed to be the example here and cannot carry through. But the tender for the blaze has been gathering for months. So let's just remember that. This is not something that happened overnight. So with every tweet that the election had been stolen, every refusal of Republican lawmakers to recognize that Joe Biden was going to be the next president, every dog whistle call that emboldened white supremacist groups to violently strike him, the presidential debate, I'm looking at you, President Trump, all of these things contributed to what happened this past Wednesday. Yeah, and I think that's just like so important to note and continue to highlight because Well, you can look at Trump's speech on that day. There are things you can pick apart in his speech that definitely prompted them to go do that. That was like the tip of the iceberg of why this happened. I mean, this has been, again, not, I mean, weeks definitely since the election, but like his whole administration has come to this really. And just what kind of base he has created and the lies he's embedded and manipulated into their head, like... This is a long time coming. It's Trump, but it's also everyone who has enabled him in any way that has gotten us to this point. And so when this gets investigated and hopefully they charge him, but it's not just looking at what he said that day in that speech. It's like, let's look at everything he said <laughs> it, like in the last few months and his whole administration that ultimately have enabled his base and these people to do that because it's it's been a long game for him of why we got here but since last wednesday a lot has gone down as a result of this and so we've seen you know some republicans have actually shockingly stayed loyal to trump many have actually denounced him and distanced themselves from him and again like crazy to say but cockblock mcconnell came through on this one but Lord knows he's an enabler, so he's definitely partly to blame for all of this. Members of Trump's administration have stepped down from their roles, just like in disappointment and dismay like of the insurrection last week on our Capitol. And then kind of on the flip side, Democrats have been pushing for the removal of Trump, for the removal of some of these senators and Congress members who have really enabled this. So Mike Pence told Nancy Pelosi he would not invoke the 25th Amendment on Tuesday to strip President Trump of his duties. That was somewhat um, expected. And so the House will move forward with impeachment, charging the president for his role in this whole violent mob situation. So this might be confusing. It was definitely confusing to me at first. Democrats pushing for the 25th Amendment. What is that? 
and then also pushing for impeachment. So quick dumb question break, because we all have them. Like, what is the difference between the 25th Amendment and impeachment? What are Democrats really trying to do with all of this? So the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution says that if the president becomes unable to do his job, that's vague, the vice president becomes the president. It can be sickness surgeries. There have been presidents in the past that have actually used the 25th Amendment while having surgery and or medical procedures. Yeah, but it also can be temporary. So again, if you, you know, a president needs to get surgery, he can give his powers to the vice president for that, you know, week or two weeks that they are physically unable to perform the jobs brought on by the decision by the vice president and the president's cabinet to decide whether the president should have to step down for however much time is needed. But basically, like the Democrats are asking Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment because they find Trump to be unfit to handle this job in manic potentially and just really putting our country in danger. So impeachment, a little bit different here, is decided by Congress. So the U.S. Constitution says that the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for a conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So as Congress has defined it through the years, all the TBTs, the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors includes exceeding or abusing the powers of the presidency or misusing the office for improper purpose or gain. Also, if you're confused, you're like, wait, didn't Trump get impeached already? The answer is yes. (laughs) And so if Trump gets impeached, he will be the first ever president to be impeached twice. And so you're probably also like, okay, if he got impeached, why didn't he leave? Trump got impeached in the Congress. And so that's where it starts. That vote made it through Congress, went to the Senate, and it died because of... Cock block McConnell. And so he basically got acquitted from that impeachment back in January of last year. And now he definitely probably will get impeached in the House, but... In the Senate, we'll see if enough Republicans muster up the balls to make this happen. But there's a lot of confusing aspects to this, right? Like, I've been very confused about it all. I mean, the first question I feel like I had was, like, what is even the point of impeaching Trump now? Like, he's leaving office in a week. So some Democrats say Trump just, like, needs to be impeached to hold him accountable, which, yeah, I would agree with. And... You know, more tangibly, Trump has made noises about, like, running for president again in 2024. And so that's a prospect that alarms many Democrats and now is actually alarming Republicans as well. And, you know, it also kind of complicates the ambitions of other Republicans to even get the, like, party back on track and potentially get a legitimate Republican candidate in 2024. So, you know, there is kind of more Republicans actually getting behind this impeachment potentially. We'll see. You have to have a two-thirds majority in the Senate to impeach president. So it's a, it's a cl- uphill climb. As Miley says, it's the climb. Life's a climb, but the view's great. But should he be impeached again by the House and convicted this time? Again, required two-thirds supermajority in the Senate. Senators could also vote to disqualify him from serving in a future federal office, which actually only takes a simple majority of a vote in the Senate. So uphill climb to get him impeached but then it'd be kind of an easy feat to then disqualify him for running for office in the future this next question is very confusing i was very confused by this i still kind of am but sam like is there even enough time to impeach trump like he's leaving literally days well yes yes and yes so if anyone wants to like take a little walk back through time and think about this fall when the beloved ruth bader ginsburg fortunately passed away and she was replaced quite swiftly well if you can confirm a supreme court judge in the amount of time that they did then you can absolutely impeach the president in that time but time is obviously of the essence so there's enough time for the house to pass one or more articles of impeachment. So formal written charges for consideration by the Senate, but there's little to no chance that the Senate would act by January 20th, which is inauguration day. So since the goal of many Democrats and so far three Republicans transcends just removing Trump as president, you know, the person that's in charge of the nuclear codes, but goes beyond that to 
prevent him from having a pension, prevent him from getting that million dollars a year for travel, prevents him from running again in 2024, and of course is symbolic in terms of holding him accountable for his actions and role in this. It's possible that House Democrats are able to, and might, delay sending any approved articles of impeachment to the Senate for a couple of months. So, and here's what the kicker is. Why, like, why would you delay this? It is to not interfere with the first 100 days or so of President-elect Joe Biden's administration. So there are a lot of different reasons that the Democrats may push this ahead. Well, the two other presidents that have been impeached stepped down after they were impeached. So that's why they left office. Then no one has ever been actually fully convicted of impeachment before. And again, I think if they can't get it done and very quickly here that they do need to delay it because President-elect Joe Biden needs to have all of his cabinets confirmed in the Senate. And so that's kind of what our Senate needs to focus on in like these next hundred days because we need a functioning executive branch to have our country functioning and to tackle things like COVID and to make sure we're protected and all these different things. So that's why they would delay it because the first 100 days of a presidency is very important. But if you're confused about all of this, like you're not alone. This is all very confusing. And again, just like the thesis of Donald Trump's presidency is like, I didn't know our government could do this. And just the thesis is like, this is unprecedented. <laughs> like All of this is crazy. Honestly, like political pundits, legal experts, they're all figuring this out as they go. They're probably looking through their like the constitution and reading really what could happen here. Like everyone's just like pivoting every day because of the crazy shit that happens in this presidency. So if you're confused, don't worry, DM us with questions. But basically, like to kind of move forward, that last Wednesday, that was not the end of it by any means. So We've now seen, you know, starting this week and running through at least Inauguration Day, armed protests are being planned at all 50 state capitals and at the U.S. Capitol, according to an FBI bulletin obtained by ABC News. And so the FBI has also received information in recent days on a group calling for storming state, local, and federal government courthouses and administrative buildings in the event that President Donald Trump is removed from office prior to Inauguration Day. Another aspect of this, so a little update, like more than 70 people have been charged and at least 170 cases have been opened. And so the federal investigation of all of this could take months to complete. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they get to hold all these people accountable. (laughs) But let's cross our fingers and hope so. And then again, like, just like stay on your toes. Like this is not over and just stay safe out there. It's scary. And if you're, like, heated by all of this, let's not go, like, do any counter-protests. Like, that's how (laughs) maybe civil wars start. So let's stay safe. Let's stay home. Please, please, like, be aware of your surroundings. Stay safe. Do not get yourself involved here. That is just not, not the move. Not the cool kids thing to do. Leave it to law enforcement. So... In terms of where we're at, the Republican Party, like thinking about where is the Republican Party right now, they're really at a crossroads. Essentially, you know, they're facing the future without President Trump, which has really changed the face of the Republican Party and what they stand for and what they are, you know, willing to stand up to or not. So as, you know, growing outrage over the insurrection of the Capitol continues to evolve, we, you know, are really seeing some moves where, well, the the movers and the shakers are, which always has to do with one word, and that word is money. So corporate donors are withdrawing financial support from Republicans that backed Trump's call to throw out votes in states President-elect Joe Biden won, putting the GOP in danger of heading into the critical midterm elections for them at a significant cash disadvantage. The social media giants have also been very much involved here. Hello, Twitter, Facebook, you name it have stepped in here. So the giants have pulled Trump in response to last week's violence and are cracking down on right-wing content, leaving the party with a massive messaging void. Senator Ted Cruz and also Josh Hawley have also become pariahs on Capitol Hill and are facing calls from their colleagues to resign or be censured over their efforts to challenge the Electoral College vote count, which was interrupted by this exact deadly siege. And they played a huge role in pushing this ahead. Also note here too is Josh Hawley had a book coming out with Simon & Schuster, and that has now been suspended. So there have been some interesting 
money money moves, if you will, that have happened as a result of this. Be interested to see what other companies get involved or do not. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, these Republicans who are standing by him are just dying on this hill for him and for this base. And it's just crazy to think. And I, I really feel like the Republican Party and moderate Republicans and kind of traditional Republicans have kind of lost a place in that party. And there is a way to recover those people and those voters. And Republicans really should work on trying to win them back than appealing to this base of extremists, really, and that have really just been fed conspiracy theories. Like, when are we going to break away from these conspiracies? We need, like, major healing to happen. And, you know, the Republicans dying on this hill with Trump are just... I think I think they need therapy, really. I, I really do. I mean, there's been that whole push of men will literally start insurrection instead of go to therapy. And I could not agree more. Like, it is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Again, this all is crazy. This is all confusing. I'm still confused. So if you guys have questions, keep sliding into our DMs. We're happy to answer them. Any questions you have. But we also have a guest today, and she's incredible. Sammy, can you introduce her for us? So we are welcoming Emerita Torres, who is a state committee member in New York State. So without further ado, let's get this started. Thank you so much for having me. So I am the state committee woman for the 85th district in the Bronx. So the south and the east side of the Bronx. It's a very diverse group of communities. I am also very involved in national politics. Like I've done um, some campaign work for the Biden campaign to make sure that he got elected to save our country. And I've done a lot of work as well in prior campaigns supporting the Obama campaign before that. So that's my political involvement. I'm also a community activist um, in the East Bronx through the East Bronx uh, Mutual Aid Group that I have. Amazing. So lots of things going on. Like, do you sleep? (laughs) So I think, you know, like during the pandemic, it's been really hard for everyone. And so I have my, my nine to five where I work with the Community Service Society of New York. But my my five to nine is really doing a lot of community work, promoting the mutual aid group and ensuring that our community is involved there and ensuring that we can really serve residents in, in the area who have been really hard hit by the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, I love how you put that the five to nine. I always like make the joke of like, yeah, my like my nine to never o'clock. I might steal that. I love that. But as you noted, you have a role as a state committee member. What is that role? Like, I, I know that's something that a lot of people heard of, but they're not really familiar with what the role actually is. Sure. So state committee members are unpaid elected officials who serve a two-year term. They must reside in the assembly district which, in which they're elected. So I'm in the 85th. And some of the things that we do, we attend and participate in the party, the New York State Democratic Party's conventions. We also participate as a, or we serve rather, as a liaison between the community and local officials. That includes like city council members, political candidates, state governments, um, and even congressional officials in some cases. We bring back information from the state and the federal level to our communities in, in the neighborhood to tell them, for example, what's happening in the party or what, you know, big policy changes may be coming down the pike. I think what's also really great about these positions is that you can create a space to be an activist in your community. You can promote local initiatives, you can inform people about the electoral process, you can engage them civically, you can get them involved and bring them into the fold. And I feel like our Democratic Party, we can do a whole lot better with that. We can do a whole lot better in bringing people into the fold who haven't traditionally been a part of the party. I mean, that kind of just brings us into like our I have a stupid question segment because we want to know all about state committees and and you know how they function and so first what is a state committee in? and like does every state have state committees that function like that yeah so the state committee is essentially well take a step back right the democratic party is divided into three levels or committees right you have representatives at the national the state and the county level so we're talking about the state democratic party or state committee so that's really the representative body at, of the democratic party at the state level And so each assembly district has a male and a female member that's elected. But that's actually soon going to change uh, for the better because there was a recent resolution that was signed um, in the New York State Democratic Committee to ensure that positions are gender non-binary. So that's going to change, which is great. 
and basically my role is I'm voting on resolutions that come through the party. I'm informing my community on what's happening in the, in the, in the Democratic Party. And I'm also taking on that sort of local activist role, which we've done a lot during the pandemic. And every state, to answer your question, every state does have some form of a national committee for their their respective Democratic Party. Interesting. I feel like that, too, in and of itself is like a question where you're like, huh, like, does every state have one? Is this something that's national? Is like every state seems to have like their own like idiosyncratic elements to them, especially New York State in comparison to the rest of the country. So it's like, is this just a New York thing or like Maddie's in California, for example, and California has so many little changes within it in terms of how politics operates. Yeah. And I think just to add, I think it's, you know, for our Democratic Party, for example, my position, a lot of people in the community don't even know what a state committee person is, what they do, the same for district leader, the same for county committee. So I think it's really important that you're discussing what a state committee person does, because a lot of people just really don't don't know. And they don't know that they can run for that position, that you can be elected and run for that position. I think that perfectly segues into our next question too, which is how are committee members elected? What is that process like? Yeah, so I decided to run for state committee. Oh my gosh, I feel like the year, it's the same year, so uh, 2020. (laughs) I feel like 2020 is the longest year ever. I decided to run (laughs) in early 2020 and you have to, you know, have to register with with the New York State and the New York City uh, Board of Elections to, you know, file for your candidacy. You also have to collect a certain number of signatures to, and you have to uh, petition to, to get on the ballot. And the way you do that is by collecting a certain number of signatures. This year, because of the pandemic, the requirement was lowered because it was just really difficult to go door to door. Usually you're going door to door, you're going to community parks, you're going to engage in different places around the community to get your signatures and to talk about who you are. But during this cycle, it was really, really difficult to do that. So I was able to get the, the number of signatures that I needed. And so then you're on the ballot. And then it's just a matter of getting out your platform, engaging with voters. I did a ton of phone banks. So that was really where I, I did, did my outreach. I had volunteers and friends. I raised, I raised some money to do some, some flyers and some mailers to get the word out about who I was and what I stood for and really wanted I, what I wanted to do in the community. And again, as I said before, I think it's really important just to, to highlight the fact that this is a position that exists because usually these, you know, people in these positions have been there for so long. You know, they're handpicked. No one runs against them. So I think it's a really good opportunity to step up in your leadership, to step up in your civic engagement and run. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, too, because we always talk about getting involved and also contacting your elected officials and making sure like your voice is heard and all of the different opinions or perspectives that you have on a topic for your community. It's like really making sure that that's heard and talk to or communicate with like your your officials. But it's interesting to know, oh, there's actually an elected position that can assist you with that. So I think this conversation is really important knowing that this position not only exists, that you can run for it, and that this liaison position is really important for making sure that your challenges as a community are heard and understood. That's super interesting. That's something I I definitely don't know enough about. And we're super happy to have you on to, to talk about it all. You know, another thing that we know you're definitely involved in is involving the affordable housing front, which is a very pertinent topic across the country, but especially in New York, especially in California, here I am. It's a big, big problem. And, you know, you're involved with, in the South Bronx, you know, tackling this issue. And so you're involved with Budco that's in the South Bronx. And so how, what is your guys' mission and what do you guys strive to do like on a daily basis there? For sure. So WEDCO stands for the Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation. I'm an associate uh, board member with WEDCO. It's one of my favorite organizations. They do really, really tremendous work. So they are a community development organization and their mission is to give the South Bronx access to all the resources that they need to have thriving neighborhoods from highly affordable and high quality housing to uh, early education and after school programs, access to fresh, healthy food appropriate cultural programming and economic opportunity. And so Wetco is, is known um, for its like stellar affordable housing. They really create an environment where you can live uh, dignified, where you're proud of where you live, where it's not dirty. You're not waiting for a broken elevator. The heat's not, you know, coming in and out. Some of the problems that you see, for example, in NYCHA public housing, I think what what WECO tries to do is to create an affordable housing structure where you can really be proud of where you live and you don't have to face some of those issues. Um, and, and they serve, and the way they work is, 
it's more of an ecosystem. So they, they look at housing, but they look at all the things that affect your housing and that affect your experience and your livelihood. So, you know, like early education, childcare, they have a food, they have like a, a community kitchen. So, you know, entrepreneurs who, you know, like, let's say they have a small food business, they, they can't cook at home. There's a, a community kitchen they can go in and, and cook their meals and then provide them, you know, for, as, as a business. So they do like so much, so much tremendous work and they have a very, very comprehensive community development model. That's awesome. Which I think too speaks to sort of our next question, which it's like, okay, affordable housing is such a core issue. It's not just a New York issue, not just a California issue. This is definitely something that's impacting people across the country. But could you shed a little bit of light on some of the core issues that have caused this affordable housing crisis? So New York City, so median rents, your median rent is continuing to far outpace what your median income is. So rents are skyrocketing. Your income is either staying the same or slowly, you know, perhaps increasing for some people, but it's totally out of whack. The system rents are going up at just a skyrocketing rate and it's becoming less and less affordable, particularly for low income families to survive in New York City. Affordable housing is becoming more and more out of reach for low income New Yorkers and even moderate income families as rents continue to skyrocket. Public resources as well for affordable housing are, are shrinking as the need expands. So you have this lopsided sort of scenario, right? And I think the other thing to keep in mind here is, is something called rent burden. Rent burden is when basically your rent burden is, is defined as when you're paying more than 30% of your monthly income on rent. And New Yorkers, over a million New Yorkers, are considered rent burden. And that's anywhere from 30% all the way to 50%. And if you think about that, you're spending 50% of your income on rent. You don't have enough to even pay for other items. And, and right now, during a pandemic, people are, are not even people are unemployed, like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are unemployed in New York City and beyond. So it's a really, really difficult time, especially with with housing. People are incredibly housing insecure. And right now what we're facing come January 1 is the potential, I mean, people are already getting evicted, but we're going to see mass evictions happening unless there's an eviction moratorium that's passed by, I hope, the governor that will say, you know, people can stay in their homes because People are just unemployed and they're struggling. And what we're also going to see likely is an is a increase in homelessness because people are going to be losing their homes and they're going to be out on the streets. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I think it's, it's such a complex topic too. And I think, you know, a big problem tree can be drawn up for affordable housing and like what can cause it and also what like solutions are. And I think now facing the pandemic, it just opens a whole different can of worms as far as you know, problems that are causing it, solutions that are needed. But I mean, kind of on the whole, like how, what are some of the major solutions that we need to enact in New York and maybe even across the country that can help affordable housing be more available? And I guess now in the face of the pandemic, what are some things that need to be done? Like you said, like an eviction moratorium, what are some things that need to be done to help the extra pressure on the need for affordable housing due to the pandemic and unemployment? Sure. I think, I think the core issue is really affordability. And the New York City housing sort of schemes are designed as such that rents don't match incomes. So like rents are just way, way too high for the amount of income that's coming in for individuals and for families. So we need to really make housing truly affordable. I think that's the first thing. And we need to be more comprehensive in how we're thinking about policies for for housing. Policies that include strategies for affordability and protection of tenants, and whether that's in public housing, so in, in NYCHA, whether that's in private and market housing, as well as addressing the homelessness crisis, because more and more people are becoming homeless and they're provided these temporary shelters that are not safe, they're not sustainable. The homeless can't, can't sort of grow in, in, these, in these shelters. They need permanent housing. They need permanent housing to, to prosper. So I think we really need to take a fresh look at how we're addressing housing and, and housing issues because it's, it's totally in silos. NYCHA is in one is in one bubble, homelessness is in another bubble, and the other housing issues are in another bubble, affordable housing in another bubble. We need to think of this as a, as a comprehensive problem that requires a comprehensive solution. I think also we need to think about housing less so as a commodity for profit and more as a social good. So for example, the Centers for Disease Control. It's a national entity. They pushed out a policy that basically said all residential evictions are halted because of COVID. This is a huge policy change in my view and a huge, maybe not a policy change, but a recognition that housing is healthcare. 
that housing is not necessarily a vehicle for profit anymore. It's, it's your livelihood. It's a structural system that supports your well-being. And it is a human right. So I think in that respect, governments really need to rejigger how they come up with figures for affordable housing and how they keep people in their homes. Yeah, well, I have a question about just that sentiment in general. How do rents just like skyrocket? How does that even work? Like, why are rents so high? Why does that happen? I mean, it's a great question. Like landlords take advantage, you know, for example, let's say a landlord invests a small amount in like a capital improvement in a building. Like, let's say, I mean, I... They, they, I think they're called MCIs. I'm forgetting the exact one, a major capital improvement. If they do that, let's say they put in a new heating system, right? They have the right to increase the rent by a certain amount, right? That's one way that they can increase the rents. The other way that they can increase rents, and this is happening um, right now, actually, you know, the 0809 Great Recession, there was a huge housing bubble, right? So you saw landlords losing, being unable to pay their mortgages, and then you saw big companies like BlackRock and related companies buying up those buildings and charging way higher rents. I see that a housing bubble like that happening now because you have tenants, for example, who cannot pay their rent because they're unemployed. You have landlords who can't pay their mortgages. So what's going to happen is you're going to have these big wig companies coming in, buying up these buildings and jacking up the rent. And so what you're going to see is higher rents, not at, afford- not at the level of affordability that we need, and the government is not intervening to allow for organizations like WETCO, like other community development organizations, to build these affordable housing schemes at scale. It should really be those community development organizations and the government to be buying at least part of those houses, as many homes as they can, as many buildings as they can, so that we can invest in truly affordable housing. Makes sense. And it's interesting to see like what's been done and what hasn't been done. And hopefully we'll see like some changes. I know I'm really curious to see how this topic evolves just even in this coming year with the new administration and their approaches and who they bring into the fold on this. As a New Yorker, I can definitely attest to rents being way too high. But another issue that, as you said, kind of interrelated here, everything's intersectional, food security. So you are the co-founder of the East Bronx Mutual Aid. How do you sleep? Literally, like, did you, like, add extra hours to the day in your calendar? Like, there's definitely some tricks we're, like, going to need. But we do want to hear more about this particular organization, its mission, how you founded it. So if you give us, like, a little bit of a rundown there, that'd be great. Sure. So I'm, I'm one of a couple of co-founders, actually, of the East Bronx Mutual Aid Group. We are a group of Bronx activists, organizers, and neighbors who came together to support our community who needed assistance during the COVID-19 pandemic. We collaborate, we mobilize resources for the community on behalf of the community and with the community to address largely what has been growing food insecurity in in the East Bronx and actually across the Bronx. The Bronx is one of the most food insecure, it is the most food insecure of the five boroughs. One in four Bronx sites are food insecure. And it's been paralyzing. I mean, you've seen the lines for, for pantries, like you're, people are waiting around the block to get food because they can't pay their rents. They don't have employment right now and they're not getting pandemic um, unemployment insurance and they're not getting any assistance from the federal or state government. So there's really community members are really facing a hard time. So what we do is, you know, we provide since April, we were providing food deliveries. So, you know, we raised money over twenty thousand dollars. And we use that, those funds to do food deliveries for those who needed them, the elderly, those who really at the time, you know, April, May, June, even, even, even March, the elderly who couldn't leave their homes to go um, food shopping. You know, we provided grocery bags. We went on deliveries. I was going, I think, like between all of us, every day one of us was going out and, and doing food deliveries. Um, so that's one big part of the work. We also connect people to resources to help them understand, you know, the kinds of benefits that they can take advantage of. I mean, there's a lot that goes into mutual aid work, but the idea is that we're doing this as a community for the community. So many uh, mutual aid groups have really stepped up and I'm proud that we're one of them. Yeah, especially, I mean, right now, I mean, I'm just reading how there are millions of people right now who have never been food insecure, never been to a food bank, never needed one, who are now food insecure. And I think this is also a topic that a lot of Americans in general have a hard time wrapping their head around of realizing like how big of an issue it is. You don't like think of the U.S. and you think of children starving or hungry, but it's a reality for so many people. Can you kind of also like dive in a little bit deeper on of like what food insecurity is and kind of like 
how it shows its face. What are we seeing as far as food insecurity and what does that all even mean? Yeah, so food insecurity in a nutshell is, is the lack of consistent access to food. So it can be, the reasons can be for financial or economic reasons. You know, maybe you just you don't have enough income. Maybe it's because you don't have the transportation necessary to get, to, to go to the grocery store, to go to the supermarket or other reasons. So you, you basically have an impediment to food access, whatever that might be, that makes you food insecure. And the scale sort of varies depending on where you live, depending on your income. And like I said, the Bronx is considered one of the hungriest boroughs. And some of the, some of the phrases you see thrown around is food desert or food swamp. A food desert, for example, is, is a place where, you know, you can't access grocery stores or supermarkets really or healthy, fresh food within your vicinity. So, you know, for example, like I grew up about 12 blocks from, from a supermarket. Like that's, that's pretty tough, you know, like in the wintertime, for example, to walk 12, 15 blocks, imagine if someone is, is, is less abled or imagine if someone doesn't have transportation options, like to get to, to fresh food is very difficult. And then on the other hand, this is more of a new concept. The concept is not new, but the name for me, or the phrase is new, it's called food swamp, where you have a ton of unhealthy options very close to you. So again, growing up, I didn't have supermarkets by me, but what I did have, I had a KFC, I had a McDonald's, I had a Burger King, I had a Taco Bell, all, all on a strip. So that's what I had available to me. And so you see this dynamic of not enough healthy food, op- food options and too much unhealthy, too many unhealthy food, op- food options. And this creates a dynamic of both like food insecurity and also just horrible potential health outcomes if you eat all of the, you eat from the, those sources. So, and it's good. I mean, it's important to have choice, you know, but I think that you should have a diversity of choice. hundred percent. I mean, I think it just shows too that how all of these issues that we're even talking about, how they intersect, right? Like housing to healthcare to food insecurities and like the food deserts. Again, I feel like it is just all our topics brushed over often. And I think it's also important just to know on the healthcare side too, like how these communities are struggling with their health and all of these things from like the quality of their housing to the quality of the food they have access to are all like huge contributors to that. Absolutely. And I'll say that I think food insecurity really comes down to poverty. Like that, that's the core issue is, is poverty, lack of lack of income and financial insecurity, right? So if, if it's often the case that a family can't afford, or it often comes down to a family or individual's ability to afford basic necessities, whether it's rents, insurance, utilities, medical bills, right? And once they pay for those, what you find is there's no pot for groceries, there's no pot for healthy food. And that's what contributes to, to food insecurity. So I think it's, it's largely a poverty income and wealth inequality issue. Yeah, absolutely. That intersectionality of it all, I think, is is so key. And I think we're seeing that more just to tap back on everything that's COVID related, but even more so, it's like illuminating the intersectionality of all of these different topics, unfortunately. And I, I think, too, the term food swamp is a new one for me as well. Like I've heard food desert before, but I think that's like a really interesting takeaway of thinking about too, like what the investment communities are from some of the external sources and see like, okay, like a a food store market isn't coming in and investing. What's the question there? But instead like a KFC is coming in investing. What are they seeing from a corporate level that makes this advantageous to them? And what needs to change at that level that makes it so it is advantageous for them and then therefore the community. So I think from a policy lens, there's a lot that like needs to that's intersectional up here that needs to be reviewed and discussed so that it can help here as in terms of policy i mean i think you know we need to create more incentives for supermarkets and healthy grocery stores to come into communities it's very easy for you know a conglomerate or a large company or a mcdonald's you know food chain to come into the community right like we need we need gatekeepers that are looking out for our community's best interests. And those should be obviously like our elected officials, you know, myself included, city council, state senators and, and state assembly people and our Congress to really serve as those gatekeepers and our communities as well. Like we have community boards. I thought it was really interesting. I came across an example of a food council, which sort of looks at the, looks at the issue of food from an ecosystem perspective, where you're looking at, you know, how many supermarkets are in the neighborhood, how many fast food restaurants are in the neighborhood. Are, what are the needs? What are the gaps? Like, how do they, they basically map out the food ecosystem and try to figure out um, what's needed? So I think those policy initiatives are really interesting. I also think farmers markets in places um, where there are no groceries or supermarkets can be really beneficial. 
And then I think right now what we really need, and this is across the board during COVID, is cash assistance for, for food. I think that, you know, as part of, I mean, I hope that with, you know, the new president and, and hopefully in, in the new year, we'll see some real cash assistance for, for, for families who are unemployed because they really need that for groceries, for rent, for all the things. Totally. Yeah. My gosh. It's just so interesting too. I mean, just I, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how we're talking about fresh foods and farmers markets and how that goes then into like a climate issue and climate justice and things like that of how everything is so intersectional. It's just crazy how it's especially intersectional in these communities who really need it and how all of these issues just really come down on, you know, these low income communities across our country. It's like all of these big issues really all come down and weigh on them more than anyone else. And it's tough, but what are some policy solutions that not only in New York needed, but across the country and in different cities where we're seeing, you know, similar trends and similar situations? SNAP benefits and and benefits for for low-income individuals and families, single mothers, WIC. Like, I think those programs certainly need to be expanded. And the kinds of foods that people can buy in those programs should also be expanded. So that's certainly one thing that we can do at the federal level. I think we can also, there, there are also healthy food initiatives at the federal level that need more investment. So governments can actually, you know, the way that, for example, the federal government invested with Pfizer for the Pfizer vaccine that's now coming out, or Moderna, like investing in companies to bring healthy food options to the community instead of allowing for so many McDonald's and Burger Kings and other fast food joints to come in. We should be putting a cap on those once we figure out, okay, there's too many of these, let's bring more of these grocery stores in. So I think that's another policy initiative we can do. I think it's also about, you know, creating more incentives for for the community to eat healthy. You know, like I think I think there's an assumption made that if you provide healthy food options, the community will just grab hold. I think that I think that some may, but it's also about educating. You know, like I grew up, I'm Latina, I'm Puerto Rican. I grew up on rice and beans. I love it. But I also like there, there, I think there are some consequences to eating, you know, a whole lot of oil <laughs> and a whole lot of pork all the time. So like I, I'm a bit more balanced in my diet now, but that took education. And I think that we also need to educate ourselves and, and provide resources on, on educating our community around healthier food choices. A hundred percent. Wow. Well, great. I mean, what are some things too people can do or ways people can get involved on issues like affordable housing and on food insecurities and things like that, especially right now when they're even heightened due to the pandemic? So what are some ways people can either learn more or get involved and help some of these big, big issues that we're facing? Well, certainly, I think, you know, the Housing Justice for All Coalition is a huge coalition fought for the, the rent reform laws that passed in 2019. My nine to five organization, the Community Service Society of New York, is a part. And so I think that's a really uh, important uh, organization to follow, to become a part of if you can follow what they're doing, you know, sign up for their updates on their website. I think it's going to be a big fight coming up in January to support an eviction moratorium to make sure that people can stay in their homes. So there's a revenue raising campaign that's also out there. Tax the Rich, I believe, is the, is the formal informal title. So you can find that online as well. And then you should, you know, find your local state democratic or your, your local chapter of your democratic party and also like your democratic clubs in the neighborhood. Such great tools. I think that is like the perfect way to close it with all these tools in hand. The last thing I guess to ask you, where can everyone find you? Plug your social, give us the scoop. Thank you so much. So I'm at Emerita Torres, New York for Instagram and also for Twitter. So you can follow me there. You can also, I have a website, emeritatorresfornewyork.com. So you can look there. I've been posting a couple of things around my newsletter. So you can check that out. And yeah, I would say just get involved. 2021 is going to be a big year. We have a mayoral race. We have a comptroller race. We have city council races. I think over 30 seats are turning over. So it's going to be a really, really important election cycle. You should pay attention to who's running in your city council race because those are the those are the elected officials who really affect what your daily life is like, from your transportation to like the potholes um, in your driveway to the sidewalks. But more importantly, you know, housing, housing issues, and land use. Like it's city council members who really play. Uh, uh, a critical role in those decisions. So you should know who they are. And if you want more affordable housing in your neighborhood, if you want, if you're tired of your rents 
soaring, you need to reach out to them. Yes, I love that. We always preach local and state politics. We got to keep shouting them out. So thank you so much for coming on and, you know, teaching us about state committees, teaching us about affordable housing and food insecurities, two extremely important topics. But this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, well, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, follow us on all social media, DM us all your questions about any of this and anything at all in the political space, as always. And we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.